are in the third week of our little four-week series through the first section or so, like the first three chapters of First Corinthians. And if you've missed the last two weeks, I'm going to fill you in really quick. This letter to the church in Corinth, this first letter that Paul wrote, is a letter that he wrote to an early church community that he had started just a few years prior. And this community, this early church, finds themselves deep in division. They are deeply, deeply divided. The first week we talked about how this church in Corinth had effectively divided themselves up into different parties. It's that section in this letter that may sound familiar to you where they're saying that, you know, some are saying that they're followers of Apollo, some are saying that they're followers of Jesus, some are saying that they're followers of Paul, and yet still some are saying that they're followers of Christ. They've divided themselves into who they claim to follow, and it's no surprise that that is leading them to be a divided church. Last week we talked about their pride, about how Corinth was a place, a city that people went to when they wanted or had hopes of climbing that ladder. It was a place that people went to find wealth, to find nobility, to find might. And it was a place where folks were willing to do that at the expense of others. So again, it's really no surprise that an early church full of early Christians trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus suddenly found that they had a pride problem. This week, we're going to zoom out a little bit. We've kind of been in in the weeds of this church in Corinth, the first week talking about these parties, the second week talking about pride. But this week, Paul introduces some language that we just haven't seen yet. It's similar themes, but he kind of uses some different language to talk about it, and and he introduces the language of, of wisdom, which is something that Paul talks about throughout most of his writings, specifically the tension between what he calls human wisdom or worldly wisdom and divine wisdom. So we're going to read the passage out of of 1 Corinthians. We're going to talk about it a little bit, but I'm going to try to to pull you up a little bit to kind of 15 or 20,000 feet. And we're just going to consider what Paul might want us to know and perhaps do as a people of faith as we recognize that oftentimes we find ourselves with two different inputs, right? Right? human wisdom on one side, and this this mysterious divine wisdom that Paul speaks about, especially in this section of 1 Corinthians. So let's read it together uh, this week. 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 2, so we've been in chapter 1 the last two weeks, now we're in chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to skip and read verses 15 through 16 to kind of see how Paul bookends this, this section. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you with lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not made with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power." So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, 
None of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who had known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of God for you, the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. So a little bit more, I think, this read. When I read this this week, it struck me that this is a bit more of a heady passage than we have encountered the last two weeks. But it becomes really clear really quickly that Paul sees the wisdom of the world or this human wisdom at odds with the wisdom of God. And Paul is sure to point out, right, I hope you didn't miss this, that this human wisdom, this wisdom that the rulers of the world ascribe to, is the wisdom that led them to crucify Christ. So that should be our first red flag, right? That this human wisdom is probably going to lead us down the wrong path if we take it far enough. And what I realized is that really the past two weeks, we have in a sense been talking about human wisdom. We just haven't been using that language to talk about it. It's human wisdom or or the wisdom of the world that led this church in Corinth to begin to divide themselves into parties. It was that desire that we have all felt rooted in human wisdom to be right. The willingness and desire to be right at the expense of your neighbor at times, right? Which we know is rooted in human wisdom. And I think it's the same thing with the pride that we talked about last week. That desire for power, that that belief that, that status and nobility and wealth and control and all of those things, that those are the most important things in life. Or what we said last week, that so often pride is rooted in our belief that what we want is more valuable than what God has already provided. That is human wisdom. I think you know what human wisdom is. I think that's my point, right? I didn't feel the need to stand up here and belabor the point to you that we are a people who are constantly surrounded and impacted by wisdom from the world rather than wisdom from God. The question is, what in the world is divine wisdom? What, what is this, this secret this elusive, this hard-to-nail-down wisdom that we can receive from God that Paul talks about here in this passage. Not only what is it, but how in the world do we get it? How do we make it the wisdom that is guiding our thinking and guiding our actions? How do we allow this divine wisdom to be what is shaping our life rather than the human wisdom that seems like it's, it's all around us. How do we lean on divine wisdom instead of leaning on human wisdom? I went to seminary with a guy named Hal. I couldn't remember if I had told a story about Hal or not yet in here. But I can't think of wisdom without thinking about Hal. From the very first day of class, he was in my same year, so he was in my same kind of three-year journey through seminary. And from the very first day, I remember the first day of class when he walked in and immediately I realized that he did not fit in at all with the rest of the students that were in there. And it was for, it was for good reasons, right? He didn't fit in because he was extremely well-dressed. He didn't fit in because he had this really nice like leather satchel bag 
that was clearly very worn in, so you could tell just how good the leather was, because he looked like he had had it for like 30 years, and that's where he kept all of his notebooks and stuff. And, and really what you could tell more than anything is just that this wasn't his first rodeo. He carried himself differently than everybody else in the room did. He looked distinguished. He looked experienced. He looked like he already had everything in his life figured out. And he was in a room with a bunch of people who were trying to figure out who the heck God was calling them to be. And he just, he just didn't fit in. In seminary, we always go around the room the first day of class and do those really cheesy icebreakers. Even when it's your third year, we still do them. So you didn't really miss out on anything when it comes to that in seminary. We're going around the room, and we learn that Hal is an orthopedic surgeon, and that he had been for the last 30 years or so, and that his specialty was, was hips. So I'm nosy, and so I Googled him in that moment because I had my computer out. And I learned that he invented a hip procedure that for a lot of folks allowed them to avoid having a full hip replacement. And it had really revolutionized what options were on the table for someone who was having pretty severe hip problems. And at that time, he was the only person in the nation that offered it. So that meant that I learned later, I learned this later, but, but that meant that celebrities would often go to him when they were having hip trouble. And I finally coaxed a name out of him, and the name that he gave me was Lady Gaga. How crazy is that? So this, here's how, right? This distinguished orthopedic surgeon that finds himself in a seminary class. And so I wanted to sit next to him because I wanted to be his friend. So I managed to get a couple of classes in a row where I was sitting next to him because I just kind of wanted to be like him, even though I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. And we got to know each other well enough that I finally worked up the courage one day in between classes to just ask him, dude, what in the world are you doing here? Why, why are you here? Why are you at Perkins School of Theology on a random Tuesday night at 8 p.m. listening to a lecture on the Holy Spirit? What, what are you doing here? And without missing a beat, he told me that he felt like he had mastered caring for the body. But he realized that he had no idea how to care for the soul. And I think what Hal was seeking was this elusive divine wisdom that we so often talk about. I think what Hal was seeking is what we see Paul reference in our scripture at the very end, which is why I wanted us to read those last two verses. I think Hal is seeking to have the mind of Christ. Did y'all catch that language at the end of our scripture? It kind of sticks out, doesn't it? That Paul has the audacity to tell us that we should be a people who have the mind of Christ. This language especially is something that Paul uses throughout his letters to early churches. It's something that Paul talks about in just about every letter that he writes. Here in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how those who are spiritual are, are able to discern and rise above the scrutiny of others because they have the mind of Christ. In Philippians 2, Paul phrases it like this, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. In Romans 12, he's talking about the same thing, but he phrases it slightly differently. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will 
of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I feel like we're getting a little bit closer to our answer here, right? Because it seems like for Paul, this elusive, mysterious, divine wisdom that he is calling us towards is found when we seek to be a people who are thinking like Jesus. And so maybe you, like me right here, maybe what you are thinking is that, well, that rules out divine wisdom for me, right? That's what I found myself thinking this week, that there is no way that I'm actually going to be able to think like Jesus. That is so hard for me to imagine that the same mind that is in Christ, that that could possibly be in my head. Because, I mean, come on, it's, it's Jesus, and I'm me. I mean, for me, that feels like such a lofty call from Paul. That feels like so much more than just calling me to do the right thing, because so often I have to sift through all of the wrong thoughts before I bring myself to doing the right thing. And yet here Paul is calling us to have the same mind of Christ. And if I'm being honest with you, that feels like a goal that I'm not very confident I'll be able to accomplish in this lifetime. But the more that I read about it and the more that I read others write about this language that Paul uses, I realized that it really may not be as complicated as we might think. In fact, I really think the only thing that it requires of us to start moving in this direction is to make a really small shift in how we look at and how we treat the cross. If you're like me, most of the time you treat the cross as something that you are looking to. And what I mean by that is that if you imagine yourself sitting in the chair at the optometrist's office getting your eyes checked, the cross is what we are looking at, right? It's that poster that's on the wall that has all of the numbers and all of the letters on it. And our journey of faith is a journey where we are seeking to be a people who see the cross with more and more clarity. As we understand better who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus has done for us through the cross. But if the goal for us as believers is to take on the mind of Jesus, if the goal for us is to stop placing ourselves at the center and start placing others at the center, if the goal for us is to be a people who have this firm grasp on divine wisdom, then I think the cross has to stop being something that we are just looking to and start being the thing that we are looking through. You see that change? I mean, does that make sense to y'all? That was, that was a light bulb moment for me this week. That maybe if we want to be a people who are rooted in divine wisdom, the cross needs to stop being the thing that we're just looking at and start being the thing that we are looking through. Because when we do that, suddenly it becomes the lens through which we see everything. Every decision that we make, every person that we meet, becomes someone or something that we see through the cross. For me, that's what it means to take on the mind of Jesus because I think that is what Jesus did. When you look back over his life, when you just think back over the life of Christ, you can see that the cross influenced every single decision that he made. It influenced who he ate with. It influenced who he healed, who he called, who he called out, right? 
It influenced how he loved, how he led, what he said. Every single thing that Jesus did. It's almost like to understand the life of Christ, you have to look at it through the cross. Or you're going to miss why he did what he did. I think if we want to take on the mind of Christ, if we want to take this calling that Paul gives us towards divine wisdom, if we believe, Paul, that we'll act with more divine wisdom, if we seek to think like Jesus thinks, I think the simplest way for us to make a move in that direction is to try and stop the cross from just being something that we are looking to and make it the thing that we are looking through. I think when we do that, we realize a real distinction between divine wisdom and, and human wisdom. When we do that, we realize that, that human wisdom is something that we, that we strive for. It's something that we, that we chase, something that we run after, a mountain that we feel like we're climbing, just hoping that when we get to the top, we will feel purpose and passion and meaning. But divine wisdom, this way of the cross, this life that is lived by looking through the cross instead of just at the cross, it's not really something that we strive for. It's not really something that we chase. It's not really this mountain that we're climbing. Instead, I believe when we look through the cross and we try to root our lives in divine wisdom, we find that divine wisdom is really something that we surrender to something that we give up to, something, something that we have to lay down for, something that will require sacrifices from us. I want to show you all a video this week because I, I love how N.T. Wright talks about surrendering to this type of wisdom and also the risk that comes with it. It also really, his words also really helped me this week. It helped make all of these lofty concepts feel just a bit more practical, and, and it really helped the rubber hit the road for me this week. So let's, let's watch this video. The art of surrender. No, uh, uh, as I say, it's very difficult in the Western world as a whole, because ever since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, we've had this sense that we are now the grown-up ones, and the rest of the world is still, you know, struggling, but, but we've actually made it. We've got modern science and technology, modern democracy, this, that, and the other. So basically, we're on top of the world. And economically, of course, that's by and large true, um, although um, there's a very long and difficult story to tell about that in terms of our own arrogance and greed and overconsumption, etc. But um, the idea of surrender, there are always some people who actually are grasped by that vocation. And I know that the monastic vocation has not actually had a huge number of adherents recently. But I know enough people who have given up significant things, um, given up the prospect either of marriage or of um, a well-paying job or whatever, and just said, actually, I'm going to give my whole self to Jesus. And I'm not sure what he's going to do with that, but it's going to happen. And they are some of the most enriched and enriching people I know. 
I shall be, God willing, in a week's time and visiting an elderly lady in Oxford who has been a nun for over 50 years, and she's now nearly 100 years old. And uh, she is one of the most delightful people and the, the, the least, as it were, unfulfilled. And yet in human terms, um, she's this funny little old lady who's never got married, who's never had any money, who's never done anything with her life other than sit in that convent and one or two others that she's moved to from time to time and pray with people, which she's done a lot of. Um, and in human terms, this was a life thrown away. And uh, But in God's terms, it's very clear this is a life richly fulfilled. And this takes a certain kind of guts and courage to say, I'm actually going to give this up. And then it's up to God what I get back instead. And often it'll feel for a while as though you get nothing back instead. Oh, well, look at you, silly you, for giving all that up. And, and But actually, when you give yourself over to Jesus and really mean it, then there is no knowing what he can and will do. I think when we stop looking to the cross and start looking through it, when we seek divine wisdom instead of that worldly wisdom that seems like it's all around us at times, when we seek to be a people who are truly wanting and yearning to think like Jesus, I think we run the risk of living a life that in human terms might look like a life that is thrown away. But in God terms, it will be a life that is richly fulfilled, a life that is centered on others instead of a life that is centered on ourselves, a life that is aligned with the life of Jesus. The point of this sermon is not to say that you have to be a nun in order to take on the mind of Jesus. That's part of the reason I wanted to tell you the story of how to try and balance those two things out. But, but I do want you to hear this because I think I needed to hear this this week. If we really want to be a people who are guided by this divine wisdom of people who think like Jesus, we have to realize that it's not something to chase. It's something to surrender to. And that's going to take courage and guts, as he said in the video, because it's going to require us to, to surrender all sorts of stuff. We're going to have to surrender some of our ego. We're going to have to love folks who we don't think deserve it, at least not by our standards. We're going to have to surrender some of our arrogance and some of our, some of our greed. We're going to have to surrender to that backbone of the cross, which we all know is sacrificial love, instead of all the worldly wisdom that may convince us that other stuff is more important than that. We will have to be willing to surrender and to give all that we have to Jesus. But when we do, there's no telling what God might do with it. My prayer for us is that we would be a people who are willing to surrender. A people who are willing to live a life that may look at least a little wasted in human terms. My prayer is that we would be a people who seek more than anything to be guided by this divine wisdom that we see Paul write about in his letters. A people who have truly taken on the mind of Jesus, who look at the world like Jesus looked at the world. A people who think like Jesus. My prayer is that we would all in some small way this week begin to make that shift that takes the cross from just being something that we are looking to and instead makes it the lens that we are looking through and just see what God does with that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.